0: you're part of God's We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 today, starting in verse 13 of Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter, thir- or Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now this morning's sermon is, was put together with those who might be here this morning or who are watching online who are kind of on the fence about Jesus. And we have those people here every Sunday, and I'm so thankful. You could be anywhere and you're here or you're watching, and this is written with you in mind. If you're a longtime believer in Jesus, you've given your life to him, let this just be a reminder of why. So for those who are on the fence, this is what Jesus means to us. That's why we love Christmas time. This is a sermon that Peter gives after healing a young man who was lame, and he begins the sermon, and he says this in chapter chapter 3, verse 13 of Acts. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and the righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, that God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Skip to verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. So repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me and among your own people and you must listen to everything that he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken foretold of these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. I've shared before that uh, in a previous life, I was a rock climber. I loved climbing rocks. Somebody laughed over there when I said that. That's kind of embarrassing. Now I'm just a washed up dad. I Don't climb anymore, okay? So, but back in my cooler life, that was something I did. I loved climbing. And so I went into the closet and I dug out this rope. This is an old climbing rope that I had laying around. And as I was working through this sermon, this image kept coming to mind. This isn't uh, sermon about teamwork and how a cord of three strands is not easily broken. That's not this sermon. It's a great sermon. It's not this one. But I've been thinking about this image. It's working for me. You let me know if it works for you. Have you ever wondered when you watch climbers on a commercial or TV, have you ever wondered how does the rope get up there? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, okay. Well, here's the answer to that. The rope actually doesn't get up there. Uh, the rope comes from below when you're climbing. So you tie into the rope, okay, in your harness, and you have somebody belaying you down below. And as you climb, you're trailing the rope below you, and they're the anchor at the bottom. And as you climb up, you clip into things as you go up the cliff. Those are anchors. Carabiners are attached to those anchors. So as you climb up, you're clipping in, clipping in, clipping in. So when you fall, you fall the distance from the last place you clipped times two. You see that? Okay, so you're gonna fall from the last time you clipped until the rope catches you, which means that your falls aren't static, they're dynamic. You need a rope that is gonna stretch. Are you with me? Because if you fell, let's say 10 or 12 feet onto a rope that didn't stretch, you'd break your back. So when you fall that far, the rope's gonna stretch two or three feet probably, but the magic of it is that the rope doesn't break. And so you think about it, I mean, look at this little rope. I, I'm trusting, I was trusting before I had kids. I don't trust it now. But I would, I would climb, you know, I would climb up and trust my life to this cord. And again and again, it was strong enough to catch me. Now, maybe some of you have watched that movie Free Solo. Have you seen this? This is about this guy named Alex Honnold who climbs the tallest cliffs in the world without a rope. I hope he lives a long life. I'll I'll tell you, the madness of that is not just that he's climbing without a rope. The madness is the certainty that at some point, everybody who climbs falls. It's just part of climbing, you fall. So you need a rope to catch you. Now, Let's dig a little bit deeper into this magic. The thing about this rope is, like it looks like just one solid cord. And this rope caught me, I don't know, hundreds of times. It's a strong rope. Thing is, if you cut it open, can you see this? I don't know if you can zoom in at all there. Probably That may be it. If you cut it up, this is why you should sit down front. If you cut it open, (laughs) it's actually made up of dozens of tiny strings, like not much bigger than dental floss. Isn't that interesting? There's just dozens of those woven together inside this sheath on the outside. And so if you cut it open, you see it's actually made up of all these little cords. It's not, a, it's not that a single one is strong enough to hold you. In fact, if you were to pull one out and climb out on it and then fall, what would happen? It would snap for sure. But all of them are woven together and that's, that's what makes it strong enough to fall on. All right, I want you to think about that with me. In Acts chapter eight, there is this story of a guy we call him the ethiopian eunuch ethiopian eunuch so he is not a member of the people of god he's somebody on the outside but he has a bible now probably at the time it was scrolls but to make it simple he's reading his bible so you think about this this is somebody on the outside of the people of god who has picked up this holy book and is reading through it. In fact, by the time Philip, one of the early followers of Jesus, comes across the Ethiopian, he's made it all the way to Isaiah, probably starting in Genesis. So he's been reading this for a long time. Now, why do you pick up a Bible and read? You don't pick it up for light reading, right? Or just pass the time. The Bible's a book you pick up when you are trying to make sense of life and nothing else is making sense of it. So you're searching for meaning and that's what he's doing. So he's in Isaiah, he's reading his Bible. He can't make sense of everything he's reading. And we come across this in Acts eight thirty four. The eunuch asked Philip, who comes across him, tell me please, what is the prophet Isaiah talking about himself or somebody else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Okay, there's there's three things I want you to see that are happening here, and this is so important, especially if you're on the edge of believing in Jesus or if you know somebody in your life who's struggling to believe in Jesus, here are three realities we see in this passage. The first is that all people are searching for meaning in life. They are trying to to make sense of life. They're trying to figure out what to hope in and why they should hope in it. They want meaning in life. Number two, when you read through scripture, you'll see that on every page of scripture, there is deep meaning. In every line and every word, there is deep meaning laced and written across every page of Scripture. That's number two. But number three, it's not always clear how those meanings, and I'm going to use that word plural, those meanings all tie together just in reading Scripture. And so what Philip shows him is that everything you have been reading, all of the different hopes of the people of God, of humanity since the beginning of time, they are all coming together in who? Jesus. They're all pointing and tied together in him. Dean Kelly wrote this book in 1972. It's a 50-year-old book now, still kind of a seminal book. And it's about why some churches grow and other churches don't grow. He said the thing that people are looking for who might come to church or who are thinking about Jesus, the thing they're looking for is what he calls largest scale meaning. Largest scale meaning. He says you can get small scale meaning by doing something like um, helping your neighbor rake the leaves. Uh, That shows you like, it's good to help people. That feels good. I should do that more often. Or having people over for dinner, community's good. Hospitality's a good thing. Or giving to a charity, it's good to sacrifice. But those are all small-scale meanings. What you need, he says, is a way of seeing how all of those small-scale meanings come together into one largest-scale meaning. And if you have a largest-scale meaning, that and that alone is the kind of meaning that will enable you to face suffering and death. It's the only kind of meaning that can give you purpose when you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. It's the only thing that can get you through the darkest times is largest scale meaning. Okay, think back with me, the rope analogy. You need something strong enough to catch you when you fall. That's what he's saying. And if you don't have that something in your life that you're constantly interacting with, clipping into anchors as you go, constantly making sure it's not rubbing over a sharp rock or anything like that, if you don't have something strong enough to catch you when you fall, you don't have enough. That's what he's saying. Okay, which brings us back to Acts chapter three. What Peter does in this sermon, this second Christian sermon here in Acts chapter three, is he begins to draw from all the smaller scale meanings that are laced throughout all the pages of scripture. He begins to pull one after another and weave them all together to say that all of those things, the people of God and ultimately all of humanity have hoped for all their lives are being fulfilled and tied together, woven together into this one person, Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so if you were to come with me throughout the whole of Scripture, and you were to just let let me point out some of these smaller scale meanings that each is significant, but maybe on their own, aren't enough to base your whole life on. Well, you were to start in Genesis like the Ethiopian eunuch did. You can see in Genesis that we have a God who made the whole world. That you and I were made for his good and to glorify him. And you would see that God wants more than anything to be with us. Miss Michelle's been preaching the sermon. Maybe you've heard the sermon. She shared it with all of our young kids this Wednesday night. She's preached it in the office. She's telling everybody. She says, do you know the first question that was asked in Scripture? Do you know it? you know what the first question was? Where are you? This is after Adam and Eve sinned, and God just wants what? To be with them. We see that at the very beginning. If you were to then come into Exodus, you would see God giving his people law. He's trying to teach them boundaries, what's okay and what's not okay. And you would see the great faithfulness of God as he comes to their rescue, even though the people of God have made a mess of things. What a message. You come into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you see God trying to deal with the problem that haunts all of us, which is sin. He's trying to keep that in check, keep the boundaries on that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You come into the historical books, books like 1 and 2 Samuel, and you'll see the great hope of the people of God has always been that there would be a king, God's king who would come on the throne and he would rule over all people. And then you come into the prophets, like the prophet Isaiah, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from, and you see this language about a servant of God who is going to suffer and die so that people would be forgiven of their sins. So here's the thing about all of those hopes that the people of God have been reading about, have been praying for, have been thinking about for centuries at a time, is that all of those hopes were what we call disparate. Have you ever heard that word before? Not desperate. Disparate means they were disconnected and different. The people of God were hoping for all those things, a time of blessing, a king, a servant who would suffer a God who would place the right rules in place and people who would follow them and give purpose and meaning to their lives. They were hoping for all of those things. They just did not see how those things would ever possibly be connected. Are you with me? And so they had a lot of small-scale meaning in their life. What they did not have was largest-scale meaning, the kind of thing strong enough to catch you when you fall. And so what Peter does in this sermon is he begins to weave all of those hopes of the people of God and of humanity together into one chord and say all the things you have been hoping for, all of your life are fulfilled in him. And so he can catch you. So look with me at the sermon itself. I'm, this, this became clear to me. One of the ways that I study a passage is I copy and paste it, and then I color-code it. And so I color-coded the various promises or hopes throughout the Old Testament that Peter alludes to in this passage, and I ran out of colors. Okay, It just turned into this kaleidoscope. So let me just show you some of what's going on in this sermon that he gives, and you can look at it this afternoon. It starts in verse 13. He says, the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, your fathers. He's anchoring Jesus, the person of Jesus in the reality, the great reality, there is a God. There's a God and you need to know him. He calls Jesus the author of life. What he's saying is you have somebody who made you, who designed you and therefore has authority over your life. Your life derives its purpose from him. He calls Jesus the author of life. That's meaning. He says that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. What that means is that morality and justice, our sense of what's right and wrong, all come from him. And you and I would not have a concept of right and wrong were it not for him and his imprint in the world. That's what he's saying. He says that you and I are waiting for times of refreshing, refreshing. Sorry, all peoples on earth will be blessed to bless you. Isn't that your great hope? I mean, how many times have you woken up in the morning and say, God, would you bless me today? The great hope of life is that you might be blessed in this life. He goes on, he says that God raised him from the dead. He speaks of heaven where Jesus is currently. This is speaking to the fact. Now, just, I mean, you and I gloss over this as Christians, but for those who are on the fence, pay attention to how significant this is. He's saying there is a life beyond what you fear most, and that is death. It's heaven. Death is not the end in him. He goes on to say that God fulfilled what he had foretold. In other words, he's saying there is somebody who is bringing all of history to his end, and you want to be on his side, And then this one, this is incredible. In four words, he says this, his Messiah would suffer. These are the two great hopes of all of humanity for all time, that there would be a king, a Messiah, and that there would be a person who would suffer so that you and I don't have to. And what he says in four words is that those two people we have always wanted are one person. You see that? Nobody ever thought that was going to happen. No way. He says they're one. And then he says this, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. What's he saying? If you trust in this cord, in this one, in whom all of your hopes are woven together, he and only he is strong enough to catch you, he says. And there's more we don't have time for. But he says, and this is the Christmas hope, that all of this points us to this hope that he would send the Messiah again, that Jesus would return, the one who has been appointed for you, Jesus. It's all woven together in him. In physics, there's what's called the theory of everything. Have any of you smart people ever heard about this? There's different theories proposed for the theory of everything, like quantum mechanics and string theory. I'm not a physics guy, but these are ideas or, or basically formulas that try to make sense of everything in the world. Can everything in the world be solved by a formula or a theory? I don't think Jesus is a, a physics theory. Uh, I don't think he's an answer to a math problem, for example. For the record, did you know they've ruined math? <laughs> they've ruined it. How could you ruin something that was already so bad? The other night, Noble, our third grader, had this math problem that I could not figure out. And so I wrote on his homework, what does this even mean? Signed, Dad. (laughs) Don't even know. Jesus isn't an answer to a math problem. But let me be really clear with you. The early Christians believed, and you and I believe with all of our heart, that he is the only one who makes sense of everything. That everything I hope for, everything I long for, I see tied together and woven together in Him. And only in Him. So the Apostle Paul said, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things hold together. Years ago there was this philosopher Nietzsche, Maybe you've heard that name before. And um, he famously said three words. You remember the three words Nietzsche's known for? God is dead. He said, God is dead. And he said that at the height of what we call the enlightenment, when we were glorifying more than anything else human reason and our ability to know and figure every single thing out and so he said, in a world like that, where you and I can figure and reason every single thing out, we don't need God anymore. So God is, is dead, he said. And you would kind of picture him saying this triumphantly, we've arrived, humanity, we've done it, we don't need God anymore. And there was a bit of that in him, but there was also a real melancholy in him about it because what he said was, if God is dead, then there will be great costs. He said the cost of this, a world without God tying everything together, he said the cost of this would be our entire European morality. Now, he was European. What he says is we would lose sense of right and wrong entirely. And so he predicted this. Now, this was generations ago. Listen to what he predicted. He predicted that a dark time would follow the death of God. He said goodness would crumble, people would stop being good. Terror and violence would be normal among humans. We would be divided by every little thing because we have no reason to be moral or to see things eye to eye. He predicted this post-God world where not only Christian morality was lost, but where we would lose our sense of meaning and identity and purpose and self and life. That's what he said would happen if God's not tying everything together. Does that sound familiar to you? And so what we have now are people that you know and love and that I know and love who are searching for meaning. They're searching for something to tie their life to. And they pick different things. Uh, maybe it's comfort. You know, they endlessly binge uh, scroll, you know, scroll on their phone. They watch Netflix over and over. They think life is about comfort and being happy, and they base their whole life on that. Or maybe it's about hard work and workism, and they're going to devote themselves to working hard and making money. They're going to give them whole, their whole life to that pursuit. That's going to give them meaning in life. Or maybe it's about self-realization, being who they are, no matter what, no matter the consequences, pursuing that thing above all else, being happy, being happy. And I guess when I think about that, what I basically think they are doing is they're pulling one of these small cords, I mean, not much bigger than dental floss, and they're charting up the side of this wall off into the unknown with this just little bit of dental floss trailing behind them. What is going to happen when they fall? Because a part of living, like climbing, is falling. And you want, when you fall, and you will, something strong enough to hold you. And the thing is, if you are climbing with a rope that cannot catch you when you fall, you're climbing without a rope. And so our belief that Christmas as Christians and our belief really all the time is that we have the one in whom all of our hopes are tied together the one who was before all things and in whom all things hold together. And because of that, we trust him with our whole lives. Thanks be to God. Let me say a prayer for you. God, we rejoice. We rejoice that in your son, Jesus, We see all the hopes and longings of humanity coming together. We see them tied together tightly, unbreakable. And so we give you all of our hearts. We trust you with all of our lives. And we pray, God, that you would be lifted high above all else by our faith. God, we long for the return of your son, Jesus. For those times of refreshing when you would send him back to us we pray god that you would hasten that day and if god there's someone in this room this morning who doesn't know you and hasn't trusted your son jesus with their life would you convict them would you convict them and would you bring them forward god i pray this in the name of your son jesus amen